If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. It's not obvious to me that the country is more racist than it has been, say, 15, 20 years ago. These days, there's certainly a lot more racial antagonism that's taking place. But I mean, racist in the way that we would talk about like the 1950s, the 1960s, like when there was busing and state mandated school segregation. We're not there, not at all, not by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know that America's ever been less racist. Mm. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am very happy to be joined by Camille Foster. Camille is a telecommunications entrepreneur and a political observer He has been a host on the Fox News Network, and he currently hosts the libertarian podcast, The Fifth Column. He's also a producer at Freethink, a media company that aims to tell the stories of the pioneers of progress at work in the 21st century. And it's fair to say he has made a bit of a name for himself on the issue of identity politics in particular, on which he has been raising some excellent pressing questions for a few years now. In 2017, he spoke at a spiked US debate as part of our Unsafe Space tour at Rutgers University titled Identity Politics and the New Racialism on Campus, which caused quite the stir. Camille, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Brendan. Appreciate it. I want to start off by asking you about a phrase that you have used, which is race abolitionist. Mm. And you describe yourself as a race abolitionist, and that makes perfect sense to me. And I'm sure it will make sense to a lot of listeners too. But I know that other people treat that as a a pretty controversial way to approach (laughs) the politics of race. So what do you mean by race abolitionist? Well, it's important to begin with the foundational insight. And this isn't uh, original to me. This is well known to anyone with half a brain. But the colloquial respect in which we use race, the idea of race, notions of blackness and whiteness and Asianness, um, are, are rather absurd and crude. They do not conform to any obvious genetic or biological bright lines. There, it is certainly true that there are ancestral populations, but the the nature of those populations, the diversity, the number of them, these aren't things that we have firm agreement on. Um, so in my experience, I find that in a number of different contexts, in political contexts and so the social sciences, race as an idea often tends to get in the way of us understanding complex phenomena and understand in the, in the way of us understanding uh, political problems that we're trying to wrap our hands around and understand. Um, it divides us, it distracts us, and it obscures the truth in a lot of contexts. So as a personal matter, 
the notion of self-identifying on the basis of race or regarding other people on the basis of race is just not something that I do. I don't traffic in the concept. I don't need to traffic in the idea. Um, and the notion of, of deriving pride from a sense of myself as a member of a racial identity group is something that is just absolutely anathema to me. Uh, I'm an individual. I am myself. Uh, I can be a member of any number of other kinds of tribes that I choose for myself. I'm, as you mentioned, a libertarian. I work at a place called Freethink. I'm actually one of the, the founders of that place. I'm a husband and a brother and uh, a, a father and a son. And I'm all these great things. And I have no need whatsoever for this abstract notion of race that makes other people think that there's some bonds of fraternity because we happen to look alike mm. uh, when I meet strangers on the street. I think that's wrong. Um, the, the fact is that my bonds of fraternity extend to all mankind to get, you know, a little uh, uh, flowery there. But, but that is, I think, sort of the appropriate aspiration for us. And I think people tend to see just how crude an idea it is when we start to talk about sort of bonds of fraternity between white men. Mm. People immediately understand how grotesque an idea it is. Uh, for whatever reason, they just haven't, they're either repressing or they haven't learned because they're, they're reprobates, um, but they haven't learned that they ought to have the same sort of gag reflex when someone like looks at a person who happens to look like them and regards them more highly than they might have under other circumstances. Again, which is not to say that they think other people are bad, um, but even to esteem someone more highly because they happen to look like you is, is I'm, I'm looking for a better, a more eloquent word because I'm sitting across from you and your accent makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, dumb. It's mm. just a stupid thing. Um, to invest any sort of value in. Uh, and it's something that we ought to be moving beyond. Dumb is a very good word. Um, yeah, I think, uh, well, what you've just outlined is what would have been considered to be the kind of decent, good, progressive view. I know progressive means something very different in the US than it does in the UK, but the kind of decent outlook on the world traditionally was that race was not a very useful way to understand human beings um, and that the aspiration ought to be to forget about race, to move on from race, to ab abolish the uh, ideology of race in order that we might see people as individuals or as social groups or political groups or ho however they choose to define themselves. And yet now nowadays when someone like you, like you says something like that, it's treated as an incredibly controversial thing, or certainly there will be a large number of more identitarian observers and organizations who would see that as an incredibly offensive thing. So how did we get to this situation where on the left, for example, um, 30 or 40 years ago, it might have been considered a good thing to not be racially aware and rather to judge people as individuals. Whereas now, one of the big things that the identitarian left are obsessed with is the promotion of racial awareness and being racially switched on and um, observing the world through these kind of racial goggles. What has gone wrong mm -hmm. over that period of time? So, I mean, the, the best thing that we can say about it is it's, it's born out of a desire, um, I think, to recognize profound historic injustices related to race. In uh, the American context, we begin with the chattel slave trade. And as many, many people have written about in recent decades and beyond, um, we have Jim Crow, we have Reconstruction, we have uh, redlining, we have all manner of awful things that were visited upon particular 
minority groups in this country. Um, there has been sort of a continuation of that for a duration that with black people in particular that I think is unique, but it's hardly a unique story for black people. The other people who would have been subjected to say redlining, for example, or anyone who lives in sort of a poor, depressed um, economic area. If you were interested in buying a home there and you wanted federal tax subsidies in order to be able to do that more effectively and you lived in the wrong neighborhood on the wrong side of the tracks, you were not going to get that money, black or otherwise. But in either case, the, the, the notion that we need to pay particular attention to race is born out of a sense that there has been this historical injustice, this corruption of the seed. And as a consequence, most of the disparities that we see when we look around us in today's society with respect to blacks um, earning less than their white counterparts, blacks underachieving in academics with respect to most other uh, racial groups. Um, the the wealth gap uh, is, a, is a new point of emphasis amongst many people when it comes to black families holding sort of a fraction of the average wealth as white families. These are all things that are of understandable concern mm-hmm. to a lot of people. Um, but as I said, I think that the, the truth related to all of those issues is quite a lot more complicated than race. And to, to use, to invoke an analogy that I have not really thought about particularly well, it is as if we were always referring to height in sort of every context. When we would look at, say, economic disparities between people above six feet tall and people below six feet tall. And I'm, I'm certain that we could find some other kind of bizarre patterns. And we always come back to it and return back to it over and over again, as if that's enough to explain precisely what's happening mm. in any context. Um, and it's obvious that that isn't the case there. But for whatever reason, we overlook all of the things that complicate trying to analyze complex social phenomena with respect to race. The fact that Blacks, on average, are a different age, let's say, on average, than their white counterparts. That when we say black, we're actually talking about this this kaleidoscope of people mm. with all kinds of background differences. Um, and that when we start to break up that that construct, we actually find that there are cohorts within what we customarily refer to as Black America. Um, like first generation um, African Americans, like myself, my family is from the Caribbean. Um, we tend to do really, really well mm. in the United States and in various other places um, relative to not only Black Americans, but Americans of pretty much any background when it comes to uh, wealth and income and when it comes to academic achievement. There, there is a complexity that we're overlooking because of our concern. Um, and oftentimes when I talk about this, I will often frame it as sort of an over-concern. We are appropriately concerned about historical injustices, but that appropriate concern becomes over-concern when it is pretty much the only thing we're talking about. And it makes it difficult for us to imagine that there are explanations out there um, that, that don't have anything to do with, say, active or implicit or institutional discrimination, which in many contexts they simply don't. Yeah, I, I think that's an, a very useful explanation or, or a, a very useful opening up of a broader discussion on where these problems might come from. And we have a similar thing in the UK, in fact, where every statistic that reveals that, for example, young black men are less likely than other social groups to go to university, except young working class white men who are the most like, uh, unlikely of all, hmm. um, 
those kind of statistics are instantly put down to racism, institutional racism, or another catch-all phrase, unwitting racism, where people and institutions are being racist without even realising it. Right. Um, but of course, those kind of explanations can't tell us why, for example, South Asian kids do incredibly well educationally and um, have an enormous amount of drive and tend to be quite successful. Or newly arrived African migrants, their children often do very well educationally too. So it seems that there are other explanations beyond uh, the idea that there is some kind of racist conspiracy or racist attempt to prevent a certain group of people from mm -hmm. progressing in society. So uh, given that it does appear to us, and I'm sure to many other people too, to be rather more complex than simply an issue of racism, why do some people fall back on the racism explanation? Is this, is part of this the the victim culture um, narrative where there is a temptation to explain your every social ill as a product of oppression rather than wanting to dig any deeper. I mean, it's certainly convenient, you know, it's convenient to be able to fall back on that. Um, it, it's something that we, that is familiar to us. Uh, there's a pattern of us having done this for a very long time. And oftentimes the, the complexity of the world that we actually live in is easy to ignore when you have a very, friendly, convenient narrative, especially one that no longer makes you, for example, responsible for some of the bad things that have happened um, in, in your context. Um, but it's it's interesting. I mean, I, it was just yesterday, actually, I was um, taking a look at J.D. Vance's book, Hillbilly Elegy. And, you know, that book, when he talks about the broken families, the sort of cultural dysfunction that's there, the 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 educational underachievement for people from Appalachia uh, who live in these rural parts of the country that have been impacted pretty severely uh, by a lot of the economic changes that have happened over the last couple of decades. Like, there aren't many people who, who look at his articulation of the cultural challenges that those communities face and think, oh, well, it's inappropriate to talk about culture there. You can't do that. But for whatever reason, when we start to talk about black, the black community, and the fact that there are these particular areas, these particular places where black kids will chronically underperform, um, we are unable to bring ourselves to talk about culture in those contexts. Uh, and, and I think that is perhaps born out of our desire collectively to be on the right side of this, our concern about sounding like we're saying anything that might be construed as racist um, but even there, I don't think, you know, culture is sort of sufficient because even culture is complicated. Um, so I, I'm probably giving a long meandering answer to the, to the question that you asked, but that's because I think it's a, it's a profoundly difficult question. It's, it's hard to say why people latch onto this. Um, and part of the reason though might have something to do with the fact that there just is not a simple easy, elegant, alternative explanation for many of these things. And that might have something to do with the fact that we're just framing these issues in the wrong way. Mm. Like if I'm interested in why kids aren't doing well in school, should I be asking questions about what they look like? Mm. Or should we be paying attention to the number of books that are read in the home, the number of hours spent watching television? Uh, is it likely that we'll actually see some patterns start to emerge, some different kinds of cohorts than the ones that we imagined if we stop focusing on the fact that, you know, Asian kids tend to do well. well what is it that those kids have in common with other kids that tend to do well? Um, I imagine that there is a hell of a lot that we could learn there that we simply 
put ourselves outside of the, the realm of being able to grok because of the way we insist on talking about things. And if I could go on talking too long for a moment, um, I'm, I'm thinking we're sitting here in New York City and my daughter is um, approaching, well, she's a little over one, but in a couple of years, she'll be going into school. And I've got to think about whether or not I'm interested in sending her to a New York City public school. And the prevailing debate here in New York is all about um, elite public education and the fact that not enough black kids are getting into the best schools in this city. Um, when most of the schools in this city tend to fail students of all races, mm. which is a profound, profound uh, problem. But the fact is that there are predominantly black schools in New York that tend to do very well mm. year in and year out. They just happen to be charter schools. No one is talking about the divert, the lack of diversity in mm. the Harlem Success Academy um, because they don't have to. Those kids are doing well. Yeah. Um, and I think we would do far better to focus on what the the actual characteristics of success are beyond phenotype um, than than to focus so narrowly on phenotype and how to say, rejigger um, the admissions process um, so that we can get uh, the classroom composition to look slightly different, to just be aesthetically different as mm. opposed to sort of materially different. I think the, the, the reluctance to talk about culture, as you say, it's in, in many ways, it's even more complicated than culture. But uh, mm -hmm. I recognize a similar thing in the United Kingdom where at the moment, for example, there is a knife crime problem in London in particular, uh, large numbers of young people being killed uh, in knife attacks. Um, many of the perpetrators and many of the victims are um, come from black communities in London. And uh, it's incredibly difficult to have that discussion. And anyone who suggests that it might be uh, no one, literally no one is suggesting it's a racial phenomenon that mm -hmm. they're doing this because they have black skin. But anyone who ventures um, uh, into a discussion that it's possibly because of broken families, it's possibly because of the absence of fathers, it's possibly because of the circumstances in which many of these kids grow up, is instantly shot down mm -hmm. as making racial generalizations. And as a consequence, what you realize is that the the racialization of every discussion actually becomes a really problematic distraction from um, not only beginning to solve these problems, but even understanding them. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a distraction from that. But one thing I wanted to ask you, because you, you make an interesting point that the US is different to the UK in many ways because of the history of uh, black people's arrival here and how they were treated for, for many, many decades. I wonder at which point does the historical explanation then become a form of determinism? Because it's absolutely mm. true that mm -hmm. there is a very different historical experience. But what you find with some observers and commentators and analysts is that the historical explanation becomes this kind of very deterministic thing. Black people are like this because of the scar of slavery, right. or the horrors of the past, and we need to have reparations in order to make amends for that, and then maybe we can move on. This kind of history looms as this kind of dictatorial force in people's lives, and I think that becomes another way through which we avoid any idea of responsibility or rational discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, and, and look, I mean, there, there are uncomfortable truths that, that we do have to grapple with if we genuinely care about these issues. Um, Coleman Hughes, who's a, a brilliant 
and I underscore young um, as compared to me, who's getting increasingly old. Um, but brilliant young uh, writer who's penned a number of different pieces for Quillette over the course of the last like 12 odd months um, since exploding onto the scene. Um, but one of his early pieces, um, he did something that was, I think, very important. He actually took a look at say, the economic performance of different cohorts, say people who make above like 100K, just as a, for example, I'm not even sure if that was in the piece, but I'm just illustrating here. Um, but people who make above 100K um, who happen to be black and white and look at sort of the economic literacy of those families, their savings rates, some of these other things, things that if, if you want to tell me that the reason why people are more likely to spend on luxury goods as opposed to save who happen to be black is because of slavery, Jim Crow and redlining, uh, maybe, but that seems like a bit of a stretch. Um, it also seems that that fact that those different behaviors might have more to do with the accumulation of wealth than having a conversation about about redlining a generation earlier. The fact that some of those, um, I'm going to use a a word here, it's a little dangerous, but some of those pathologies Mm. tend to manifest themselves at all levels um, within this particular group, it does seem like it's something that's materially important. Mm. Um, And perhaps part of the reason why it's uncomfortable to talk about it in the context of race is, as I mentioned, because you're, you're concerned about being um, misconstrued as a racist, but maybe that's a reason to just abandon race in that conversation and just talk about economic literacy mm. because it's the behaviors that we're actually interested in. It's those practices that matter. Those practices almost certainly have a great deal to do with what sort of economic success you're likely to have um, in your life, what your financial health and well-being are likely to look at, whether you're black, white, or otherwise, mm. um, in which case one wonders why we're not having that conversation as opposed to fixating on this other conversation. Mm. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. You mentioned earlier, or you hinted earlier, at the fact that you don't self-identify as black. That's not how you define yourself. I hope yourself. I said it explicitly. Right, yeah. so <laughs> now you have the chance to say explicitly. Cause yes, the question I do not I, self-identify that way. The question I want to ask you is... Um, I think that's quite a rebellious thing to do in the current political climate, which uh, is one in which we are all expected at different levels to define ourselves by the accident of our birth or inherited characteristics or some other thing over which, for the most part, we don't really have that much control. What's been the response when you say that? Do you have people saying that you're a self-hating black man or do you have people... Or do, do some people, I guess, possibly reach out to you and say, I feel the same way? But... Describe to us why you felt feel the need to say you don't self-identify as black and what you think that means in this current climate. Well, I mean, it's it's deeply personal for me. Um, and to begin, as I as I said earlier, I'm I'm an individual, um, and I don't 
have any interest in being regarded primarily on the basis of my appearance mm-hmm. when people meet me, you know, unless it's from my source, sartorial expertise and, you know, <laughs> that if that's it, then that's fine. Um, but in terms of, you know, how I happen to look, it, it just seems like so guttural mm-hmm. to me. I, I don't like it. Um, and I don't like it, whether it's being done in sort of a, a, a friendly way or it's being done in a, in a gross sort of racist discriminatory way. So it's, to begin, it's there. Um, but broadly, I mean, it's true. Like, it's just true that we are more than our appearance. It's one of the most true things that we know, um, as humans in terms of the way we interact with one another. Um, so I think it's important to stand on those things for both of those reasons. If I were to go a step further, though, and this is where it starts to get into a little bit of trouble. Um, I think that as I mentioned, you know, race sort of dividing us and obscuring the truth and distracting us and perhaps blackness in particular, like as an identity, as a notion of self might have some, some components of it that are implicitly harmful. Um, I think oftentimes we'll hear t- people talk about different racial groups and say, oh, you know, Latinos, they really love their family. They value family and they, they pride themselves on this and that. I mean, everybody kind of does those things. Uh, the talking about sort of the, the positive uh, attributes of some culture, I think that's easy to do. Like, what are the negative attributes of some culture? Um, within the black community, to use sort of a crude generalization, but I'm talking about culture and that's sort of necessarily a bit nebulous. Um, is there a tendency towards sort of conspiratorial thinking about what is wrong? in society about what other people's motives are when they're interacting with you. An example that I use frequently because it rings so true and because I see it used as sort of a, a, a point of argument by the woke folks often is imagine walking into the store, the gap as a black man and the clerk comes up to you and says, how you doing? Can I help you? And in that instance, you think to yourself, why is this person talking to me? Is it because they don't think I have any money to spend? Are they, are they watching me to keep me from stealing things? And imagine yourself as that same black person walking into the gap and no one talks to you at all. And you think to yourself, well, why is this happening to me? Are they not talking to me because they think I don't have any money to spend? Mm. This is a gross, horrible cognitive load for someone to carry around. The belief that in every circumstance, everyone is primarily interested in your race. And in my own experience, most people aren't interested in mm. that. Um, in fact, to the extent they are interested in it, they're interested in not saying the wrong thing so mm. that they don't get themselves into trouble. And no one is more concerned about your blackness, in many cases, young man or young woman, than you are. Um, and it is entirely possible for you to be over-concerned. And that over-concern can have real meaning, deleterious consequences. So I hope that in abandoning this notion of self-identification that I can sort of model something for other people because I genuinely think that that regarding yourself in that kind of way, if there are attributes of the culture that are harmful to you in a broadly meritocratic society, not to say it's fair, it's not to say that it's it's always just, but broadly meritocratic where your effort matters and your sensibility about what you can achieve matters to your to in terms of your outcomes. I I want to to give people notice that mm. they have the option of opting out of all of the bullshit. Mm. 
Um, and I most certainly have. Uh, and occasionally it gets me called an Uncle Tom and a house nigger and a bunch of other things. And sometimes there are white folks who are brave enough to say house nigger to me um, or not house nigger, but Uncle Tom. Um, yeah, I don't think any white person has ever been brave enough to do that. Uh, but, you know, that's sort of the least of my problems. Mm. Following on from that, I've always thought that one of the worst things about identity politics is that it does create this huge burden for people mm. um, and racial identity politics in particular. And uh, as a consequence of this culture of presumed victimhood or, or, or kind of a feeling of being constantly under attack, people have their kind of offence antennae switched to high all the time and they seem to go through like not all people, but some people, mm -hmm. go through life expecting to encounter problems on the basis of their race or another aspect of their identity, expecting to experience hatred, expecting to experience some bad form of interaction or microaggression and so on. And if you look at the kind of campus culture where even, you know, relatively innocent forms of conversation are now redefined as microaggressive. So, for example, at the University of California, everything from asking someone where they're from mm -hmm. to even saying, I don't see race is now counted as a racial microaggression because yeah. you're denying someone's racial existence. So I think one of the uh, problems with this kind of rehabilitation of racial thinking and this kind of entrenchment of a very divisive identitarian outlook is that people go through life incredibly weighed down. Mm -hmm. And I think that must have an, a real effect on how they experience the world. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about the the Milton quote, like the the mind is its own place and can make uh, a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. And you know, one one insight that I, I've had recently was just with respect to my view walking into the gap. To use that analogy again, if I miss someone's subtextual racism, if they meant it in a racist way, and I miss it. What does it cost me? Like, what do I lose exactly? I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. You know, I may not buy anything at this particular store, but I go to the next store. Mm. Um, wh what is it exactly that I'm giving up by adopting a disposition that most people are good and most people have the capacity to regard me uh, on the basis of my sort of virtue or awfulness? Mm. And it's, it's not obvious what I give up. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to adopt that posture and to, to live with the consequences of it, which have generally been pretty good for me. Yeah. I would say that it's not obvious what you lose, but it's, it's pretty obvious what you gain, which is an approach to life, which just feels freer mm. and lighter than the, the other approach. But yeah. one thing I wanted to ask you was what role do you think white liberals, maybe that's over racialization too, or liberals in general, kind of East Coast liberals, I guess, or whatever we want to call certainly them. Certainly people who think of themselves in that way. Yes. So to the extent people imagine themselves to be white liberals, yeah. imagining themselves as a very Baldwin-esque Baldwin <laughs> uh, thing to say, um, then I think it's fair to describe them as such and to talk about their yeah. shared identity and ideas. Yeah. In the UK, we might call them the chattering classes, that uh -huh. kind of section of society. Yeah. To, what, to what extent do you think they bear responsibility for this? Because I've always thought there's, there's, there's a kind of depressingly symbiotic relationship between um, the kind of newish politics of, of black victimhood mm. um, and... Um, the white liberal appetite for 
um, stories about their society which reveal just how awful it is and how racist it is. I always think of someone like Tanahisi Coates who you know, will often give talks uh, in relation to his books which speak of um, how problematic American society is and the stain of the Republic and the original sin of, of racism and so on. Mm-hmm. And it's very notable, and many people have commented on it, that the audiences are, uh, there are a lot of white liberals there and they enjoy hearing this. Mm-hmm. And there's almost kind of an S&M dynamic going on here <laughs> where they like to be reminded of how terrible they are. Yeah. And so I wonder what role that plays in relation to the rise of racial thinking. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about John McWhorter, who, if he were in the room, would be far more eloquent about this than I I will be right now, but talking about the church of anti-racism. And as you were talking about that, I, I, I could almost hear like my grandmother and my aunts growing up talking about like, a good pastor. Like uh, they want to hear a good like sermon. And when it's really good, there's a lot of fire and brimstone in it. And it's the condemnation and it's the awful things that are going to happen to fallen mankind. Um, TNC's extraordinary success as a commentator and thinker and writer, his recognition as a a MacArthur genius, um, and the content, given the content of what he writes, there's a bizarre dynamic at work there. Um, And it's something that I have a very difficult time fully grokking and understanding. And I always get a little uncomfortable when I start to veer into talking about the people's motives. Um, I will say that it's it's certainly not new. I mean, Tom Wolfe wrote about Radical Chic and the attraction that people had to the Black Panthers back then. Um, and the even today, we have romantic ideas about what the Black Panthers were all about. It's why Beyonce dresses up in sort of Black Panther garb during the Super Bowl performances. Um, we whitewash... <laughs> We whitewash the actual legacy of the Black Panthers, the fact that in a number of cases, in addition to sort of promising free breakfast programs, et cetera, they had a protection racket where they would extract money from local merchants. They were involved in like murdering and killing some of other Black activists, some some people in the community who, who upset them in other cases. Um, there, There is a... There's a complexity there and a nuance that is ignored because it is, for whatever reason, attractive to be close to those radicals, to, to hear that you are sort of the, the worst imaginable mm. thing and that you're somehow culpable and a part of the, the guilty class. And, and I don't really know what, what motivates someone to do that. Mm. Um, it seems obvious to me that that is a part of what's happening there when people sort of talk about privilege and attach the notion of privilege to whiteness. But it's very hard for me to imagine that, you know, again, the to, to go back to J.D. Vance's book, that the people in that book would be regarded as privileged because they were white. Mm. You know, you live in Appalachia, you are sort of struggling with opioid addiction, you have a broken household, your mom is attempting suicide, your father and your mom have violent domestic spats, but at least you're not black. Mm. It's absurd. Mm. It, it just, it, it is absurd on its face, um, but it is the sort of nonsense that we traffic in um, culturally today. Uh, and that that's, I have a hard time explaining why it is. Um, I have a much easier time understanding that there's something fundamentally wrong with it and that there is an obvious alternative to it. 
I wanted to ask you about white people or, or, or whiteness rather, because you mentioned earlier how, you know, the folly of racial thinking can really be seen if you start talking about white people feeling more connected to right. white people because right. they're all white. And that really tells you, uh, tells us what a ridiculous notion uh, racial categorization is. But what's striking about the current period, uh, particularly from the kind of identitarian crew, is not only this kind of great sympathy for the black predicament as they understand it, but also this extraordinary hostility to whiteness, as most expressed through the idea of white privilege. And I completely agree with you. It seems like such a an unuseful way to define the myriad experience of white people's lives in any country, mm -hmm. never mind the United States. And it seems to completely obliterate questions of class mm -hmm. and economic power and station in society, all of which have a far more important impact on how people experience the world and what they do than the colour of their skin does. So I wonder if this anti-whiteness, where do you think that comes from and what do you think can be done about it? Because I know as a white man who's written about it, it sometimes comes off as this kind of, you know, stop being racist against white people, which is not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But what I am trying to understand is why um, part of the identitarian outlook seems to be this pretty, um, pretty pronounced hatefulness towards the experience of whiteness. Mm -hmm. it's, and it's interesting when you use the word identitarian, because in my experience, in most circumstances, when I hear people use the word identitarian, they're referring specifically to the Richard Spencers of the world, mm. the white nationalists. And I think when you use the word in that context, in the, in the way that you just did, you are identifying something that I think is vitally important, that the resurgent sense of white identity um, not just in the United States, but in Europe as well. It may, in fact, have something to do with the 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 overriding, um, I think, sensibilities about race and identity and the importance of whiteness. Um, that people who are ostensibly advocating for justice um, and racial equity, the the things that the way that they talk about things, you know, whatever the origins of it, it does seem pretty well suited to create conditions that would make people perhaps retreat into their whiteness to find community in their whiteness and say, hey, if you guys get a history month, why don't we get a history month? If you guys get to be proud of your blackness, why can't we be proud of our whiteness? I'm not ashamed to be who I am. I'm not ashamed to be white. And when you listen to Richard Spencer, um, you can often hear him sound hell of a lot like um, many of my black friends who talk about how proud they are to be black, um, who, who go quite a bit further with, you know, earrings that have the entire continent of Africa on them. Um, as, as I've said in the past about like Rachel Dolezal, if you go back far enough, we all have a black mom, uh, an African mother. So anyone can wear those, those earrings, um, with, uh, with a sense of pride, I think, or at least ought to be able to. But something else you were saying, I, I Barbara Fields, who is, I uh, believe, a professor at um, Columbia University here in New York, um, wrote a book called Racecraft and has a, a, a pretty similar take on the vacuousness of race to my own, um, but she approaches it in a, in a slightly different way. Her, her politics are a great deal more progressive, and her sensibility is that all of the conversation about race is, is uh, misguided, and it takes – 
us away from what is ultimately much more true, that there are these sort of class structures that actually are a real problem and are a real obstacle to our progress as a society. And I don't agree <laughs> with all of Barbara's economic analysis, but I certainly think that we are approaching um, a very similar sort of kernel of a problem uh, in terms of the sense that we collectively tend to view ourselves mm -hmm. and one another and the the fact that we have tended to glom on to these ideas of racial difference um, and we, we've tended to reify them at a time when we really ought to be moving beyond them. Um, I, I particularly agree that the retreat into whiteness seems to me to be a pretty inevitable function of the broader identity politics that we live under. Because if you yeah. have a situation where, you know, the thing that is most often said about white men is that they are white men and they enjoy privilege because they're white men or they shouldn't be in this part of the university campus because they're white men or they should check their privilege because right. they're white men. A constant reminder of their whiteness um, in a climate in which defining yourself in, in the terms of race or identity seems to, seems to be the only game in town. It mm -hmm. seems pretty clear to me that people will start to rediscover, tragically in my view, mm -hmm. a sense of white pride. And I think that's uh, one of the dangerous consequences of this yeah, politics. Yeah. And at, at a minimum, those two things are very compatible yes. with one another. They're also very compatible with self-segregation, which is another just bizarre thing that is happening now, where students at Ivy League universities in 2019 yeah. are interested in having Black-only graduation services, um, Black-only sort of areas of campus, African Student Union, which is not um, uh, an unusual thing. It existed when I was at university, but it was certainly not something that I wanted to be a part of. Mm. The the notion of sort of a collective Black experience, a collective Asian experience is something that I just think it's, this is obviously not true. Yeah. Um, perhaps there were times in the past where it was more true. And I, I, I should say that I recognize that I have the privilege of decoupling myself from notions of racial identity in 2019, but that's just it. I do. Mm. And it was earned with blood, sweat, mm. and mm. tears. And the blood that was shed was hardly only shed by black martyrs. Um, when we talk about the, the freedom wow. riders in the South, there were two, two white gentlemen and a black gentleman that were all killed um, while advocating for reforms, while advocating to get black people registered to vote so that they could change the culture of the legislate, the legislation, the laws, um, of the South. Um, it's, it's imperative to recognize that, that, that a massively, a, a huge price has been paid to, to, for us to be able to inherit the world that we currently live in. And yeah. I think we really, we owe it to ourselves and to all of the people, all the people who came before us to, to sort of, really embrace the the degree to which things have changed for the better in material and significant ways. I think that's one of the great tragedies of the kind of temptation of the victim culture, which is that um, some people end up telling a story about the past, which simply isn't true. Mm -hmm. And they argue that America is more white supremacist than it has been for a long it's time. Insane. Life is worse. And you think, hold on, all those generations of people in the 1960s, and of course, going back much further than that, mm -hmm. who struggled in order to make society better and actually had some very significant successes, mm -hmm. get almost airbrushed out of the picture in the name of um, providing some campaigners or observers and people at large with a, a kind of comforting sense of victimhood. And I think that's a pretty rotten thing to do pe to people from history. But one thing I wanted to ask you, following on from 
I think the class thing and the race thing is incredibly interesting, and it's something that Bernie Sanders is pushing back against too. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's trying his very best to say class is more important than race, and of course, he's been shot down by many people on the woke left. Easy for you to say, white man. Yeah, you old white man, you can say that. <laughs> but it, it's like um, the the promise of class, or at least you know, people will have their agreements and disagreements with class politics and with mm-hmm. the organisation of politics around the issue of class. But the one thing it had going for it was that it was a unifying experience and it was a unifying experience on the basis of what you did mm-hmm. and on the basis of where you were in society and on the basis of self-definition. You chose a political road, you defined yourself according to that political road and you worked with other people to achieve certain ends, whether through trade unions or political organisations. And of course, race came into it, but accidentally, it wasn't part of it, you know, of course trade unions and other left-wing activists were uh, as capable of being racist as everyone else. Indeed. But at least the point of class was that there was something in common between individuals that was off this world and social and defined by experience rather than inherited racial characteristics. So I do think the shift away from class towards a kind of much more narrower fixed, determined identities is a bit of a tragedy for people across the board. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, as as you sort of broaden the lens there, I, I think about another way in which there is a universal character to some of the phenomena that we're observing these days. Um, I, I think about my own experience, you know, traveling and visiting places like South Africa. Um, and when I was there some years ago, um, there was a pretty intense stratification um, in the society and uh, this xenophobic craze, really, this mania almost that was sweeping the country because Zimbabweans were yeah. coming into the country. And these were oftentimes poor people who didn't have many options. Their country was imploding and they were looking for jobs. They were looking to create a better life for themselves. And they were attacked viciously. Mm -hmm. Um, They felt so unsafe that they were sleeping outside of the police station um, when I was there. They had these encampments outside of the police station because they could no longer inhabit the townships. Um, If those Zimbabweans had been visibly different in terms of having white skin versus black skin, um, it's very easy to imagine that this would just be a story of sort of racial injustice. Mm. Um, but it's harder to to really pinpoint precisely what's going on there. And it's easy to overlook the fact that a lot of times the cultural divides that exist, the antipathy, antipathy towards um, various immigrant groups is these are dynamics that we see around the world. And there are dynamics that manifest themselves in, in all sorts of epochs for, in some cases, pretty common reasons. And I think we do a better job of addressing those problems, mm. of talking about them in a, in a meaningful way when we're not getting tripped up on the, well, it's racist for you to say that. Yeah. You know, we've got, we have now in, in the United States something that everyone universally recognizes as a crisis on our southern border. Before the president was saying it, he was being rather hysterical in his typical way, um, and unhelpful in many respects. Um, but now everyone gets it that there really is a migrant crisis on the border and that it's complicated and it's challenging. And at a minimum, I think a lot more Americans are starting to wake up to that fact. But what we do about it is, is quite difficult. Mm. And again, it's just, it's easy to see that at a minimum, the conversations we're able to have about that become a hell of a lot more difficult 
uh, if we are constantly focused on, well, those people look different than you know the majority of people in this country. That obviously, full stop. That's why this is going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's 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 the only thing that we really need to pay attention yeah. to. It explains and the thing explains itself. Yeah, I, there's no phrase I hate more than that. It's a very similar dynamic in the United Kingdom, where, uh, according to many in the observing classes, the only reason people could possibly have voted for Brexit and could possibly desire a greater democratic say in the mm-hmm. immigration mm-hmm. process is because they're racist. Right. There could be no it's other explanations. Too easy. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. On on that question, I wanted to ask you about Trump's America, because the picture that we get outside of America, and I'm sure you get it inside the US too from many um, political commentators is that it's become this unbelievable racist hellhole. Uh, the, the term white supremacy is used all the time now, which strikes me as a complete and utter um, warping of the meaning of words and, yeah. and the death of language itself. When phrases like that, which have you know really particular historical meaning, can be used to describe all sorts of behaviour in the twenty first century. So, uh, in your view. Is Trump's America racist? Is it more racist than America was eight years ago, four years ago? What's, uh, or, or is it yet another reach mm-hmm. for an easy explanation for a complicated political problem? This is, I mean, this is a self-rated. Um, it's not obvious to me that the country is more racist than it has been, say, 15, 20 years ago. Um, there are certainly more conversations about race um, these days. There's certainly a lot more um, racial antagonism that's mm-hmm. taking place. But, I mean, racist in the way that we would sort of talk about, like, the 1950s, the 1960s, like, when there was busing and actual school segregation, mandated, state-mandated mm-hmm. school segregation, um, we're not there. Not at all, not by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, um, and I, I heard John McWhorter, uh, to cite his name again, say the other day, and I think I probably made a similar observation, I don't know that America's ever been less racist. Mm. Um, you know, the, our sensibilities are nearly all in the direction of it is gross to discriminate against people on the basis of their race. Um, the fact is that we are somewhat hypocritical in our commitment to those ideas because I will regularly see someone – on Twitter, like uh, uh, someone else in the sort of media universe who's doing some hiring and saying, hey, I've got a job here, particularly interested in hiring a person with a a brown vagina. Like, that's what I really want for this position. Can she do the job? I don't know, but I want to hire her, which means that white penis need not apply. And and I'm, I'm using that language deliberately because I think there is something just it's very bizarre yeah. about a society that often talks about the value of being of treating all people equally, um, and that is so obsessed mm. with people's genitalia. Yeah, it's bizarre, and and their sexual orientation, which yeah. is just is the weirdest thing in the world. And I, I do not meet people and think to myself, "Oh, you know, yeah. who who would you like to sleep with?" <laughs> yeah, that's right. What, what, so, what shape is your genitalia? <laughs> so the so the uh, no, I think you're right to use those words because it. it it is actually a very dehumanizing way to approach individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 
what junk do you have and who do you sleep with and, mm-hmm. and you know, what colour was your mother and what colour was your father? That right. is a, a kind of anti-human way to approach things. So when you say um, there's racial antagonism, and I, I think that's very true, could we say that the great irony, I guess, of 2019 is that all this hand-wringing over racial antagonism, racial tensions is coming from the kind of people who might actually be responsible for it. And it's not so much that you have the shadow of white supremacy from Mm -hmm. 200 years ago still cast across America or that the rednecks are rising up and voting in into power, this kind of white supremacist called Donald Trump, but rather that the the rehabilitation of, of the racial imagination or the reinvigoration of it um, and this invitation to people to go through life thinking racially all the time might, the church of anti-racism, I guess, might ironically be the cause of racial antagonism. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that sounds pretty fair to me. I, I, the the notion that Donald Trump is a vehement racist who is stoking racial resentment and racial fear in order to gain political advantage, but I don't think he's a particularly nice guy. I didn't vote for him. I don't support him. Um, I think it's very hard to make that argument, though, when he has a bust of Martin Luther King in his office, Mm. when he makes sort of surprise visits to the Martin Luther King Memorial to walk around with the vice president, you know, and he does it in a very showy way when he's desperate to be photographed with rooms full of black screaming Trump supporters when they – to, to their own detriment, keep putting this same crazy guy on television when they're sort of staging those rallies. And it's the guy who has the Blacks for Trump t-shirt, yeah. who's actually a nutso conspiracy theorist. They're desperate to be seen mm. as inclusive, which if they're trying to appeal to white racists is a bizarre strategy. Yeah. Um, and I think that there is a tendency to, to focus on every inelegant utterance from the administration to, to focus on anything that that sort of seems sideways uh, to to be almost deliberately uh, to almost deliberately take away the generosity that you would attribute to anyone else who's making remarks. Um, I, I oftentimes draw um, attention to the fact that you know post Charlottesville, like the president did talk about like how hatred and bigotry were like not the values of our country and that the most important thing we all are is Americans. And that in the context of him saying that there were sort of good people and bad people there, um, or that this isn't about Donald Trump, this isn't about Obama, like he was generally trying to distance himself from being blamed for the carnage that was taking place. He was also talking about something that had occurred about an hour earlier mm. at an event that even me, I remember quite clearly no one really knew what was going on at that event. No one really knew who was actually going to be there. This Unite the Right event was initially broadcast as an alt-right event, and there were lots of people who were going who ended up pulling out towards the end. Um, so what was the complexion of it? Was it all white nationalists? Turns out that there was a lot of them there, mm-hmm. but that wasn't necessarily what it was going to be at a certain point in the past. And it's not hard for me to imagine a world where the president is saying things like what he has been particularly castigated for the you know both sides etc um and to imagine that in a way that isn't a sop to white nationalists and white mm. supremacists and to the extent it is a sop to them again that my perception of white nationalists and white supremacists is all wrong mm. because apparently they like when the president of the United States says that hatred and racial bigotry is not who we are yeah which if that's what they think too, 
It sounds like progress. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about Jussie Smollett mm. and um, because this is a huge story, not only in the US, but uh, in Britain and, and across Europe. And without wanting to over-determine it or to, to you know, elevate it to the kind of the, the most important symbol of our times, it does seem to tell <laughs> it us... might be. It could well be. It <laughs> does seem to tell us something quite important, not necessarily in his own decision-making process. People do crazy things and who knows. But certainly in the the rush to claim it as part of a narrative, the um, instant belief, um, the way it was folded into a broader story about the victimhood of even, you know, comfortably off successful black people and the hatred that lingers in a kind of, in, in, in MAGA circles. How do you see that affair? Do you think it speaks to a kind of, uh, to a situation where if black victimhood is, is so coveted that people who don't enjoy it will have to invent it? I mean, I don't know that I can improve on that. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes is the answer. I don't, I don't know if you saw a, a story out of Germantown, Maryland, which is not far from Gaithersburg, Maryland, where I grew up, um, an African immigrant to the United States who was wearing a Make America Great Again hat was assaulted by two black men, which is the most bizarre sort of re-engineering <laughs> of the Jesse Spillett story I could imagine. Um, it's so bizarre that it, I wonder if it's entirely true, but it seems right. about right that they approach him, insist that he should take his hat off. He says no, and they beat him up um, and rob him for good measure, as opposed to leave him with a, a noose and uh, toss bleach on him. Yeah, I, I think you're you're correct. There is something pretty amazing about the fact that someone would, one, think it is advantageous to them to be at the center of a circus like that. Mm. Um, and two, that so many people would just eagerly drink it down. They were, they were desperate almost for this thing to be true. And in many instances seemed somewhat disappointed to learn that it hadn't actually happened. Mm. Um, and there is a, there's something in that, that we really ought to be reckoning with. Uh, and I don't think we have. Mm. Um, in fact, what, what's happened afterwards is I think the outrage that a lot of people felt, um, after they discovered that, that Jesse had a seemingly, apparently made the whole damn thing up, um, and gotten off, um, is that a lot of people are saying there's nothing to see here. You know, all these white people who want him to get in trouble. This wasn't a big deal. Yeah. Are you kidding? Yeah. Are you kidding? If it had happened, America would not be the country that I imagine that it is. It's the reason I was always somewhat suspicious of that narrative. The notion that that could happen in Chicago in 2019 is just is beyond me. Um, and I'm, I'm delighted to discover that that is not who this country is, that that sort of thing can't even randomly happen, seemingly. How instructive is it that the opposite thing um, seemingly can happen and has happened on more than one occasion? I don't know. Um, again, it's, there's, there's a point beyond which my speculation will only sort of take me so far. And I, I think speculating about people's motives, um, and definitive declarative mm -hmm. statements about how we got here, um, are, are part of the problem. Mm -hmm. That's part of what I'm pushing back against when I encounter, um, a lot of sort of progressive personalities in public and quite frankly, even conservative personalities in public who are increasingly in many instances, getting on board with a lot of the same sort of activist program to try to ameliorate 
historic injustices um, in the the way that they think is best. But in my estimation, often uh, it, it just turns out to be overemphasizing uh, race, um, overconcern, uh, to use that word again. I think the, the the rush to believe it and and the way in which some people were upset when it turned seems not to have actually happened really tells us a lot about what you were saying earlier, which is that um, when you're invited to view society in this way and you when you go through life thinking these bad things will happen and there is a lot of hate out there, mm. um, you start to view the world in that way and it it, it kind of, it becomes this kind of misanthropic view of society where yeah. people are generally seen as bad yeah. and you as an individual are seen as being at threat, which strikes me as an incredibly unhelpful, anti-human, anti-social way to go through everyday life. But that leads me to my final question that I wanted to ask you, which might be too broad a question for you to answer now. But Mm. um, in relation to your own refusal, principled refusal to um, self-identify as black, if you were to encourage other um, young black people to take the same road, how would you do that? Given the climate in which they're likely to have been educated, in which they might be going to university, in which every signal that they receive is one which says, you're black, that's what you are. Um, how can we start to kind of tear that down and move towards a society where we appreciate the individual and we encourage social engagement? Yeah, well, it's, I think it's the sort of project that, that takes, it takes time. Um, and to the extent someone has listened to the whole of this conversation, that's a good start. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have, um, my challenge to you is interrogate your views, um, interrogate your sensibility about what, what has happened historically and about the best explanation for the problems that you are interested in. Um, one place where I've often gotten into trouble is I'll talk a lot about criminal justice reform in the context of conversations like this. And it's one of the, it's one of the reasons why I started talking about race, um, publicly is, you know, after 2014, the explosion of attention of police involved shootings with Mike Brown, um, in, in Ferguson, there was an intense focus on racial disparities in police involved shootings. And the, it's what sort of brought a help to bring to light the Black Lives Matter movement, bring them to prominence anyways. And my concern has long been that talking about those issues in that particular, in that narrow way, um, isn't a great way to build coalitions. It isn't a great way, in my estimation, to attract people who are likely to be sort of knee-jerk supportive of the police. Um, and it, quite frankly, it just doesn't fit the facts particularly well. And if our concern fundamentally is the same, that we both want fewer people to be shot and killed by the police needlessly, the fact that I say that it's not obvious that this is fundamentally about race, I think we need a broader program so that we can ensure that the police aren't just killing fewer black people, but that they're killing fewer people overall, which should be beneficial to everyone, mm-hmm. then there shouldn't be any any of antagonism between us. Um, but as I found in many contexts, there, there, there has been. Um, and again, I think it's one of those things where folks have to be willing to interrogate their views. They have to be willing to, to, to try to give an accounting for why they've made the particular alliances they have and the, have manufactured in some cases the particular adversaries they imagine they're facing down. Um, and whether or not that condition is really the one that's sort of most beneficial for you if if you want to be successful in taking on these incredible challenges. Um, 
and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll end on a, on a positive note because I, I spend most of my day working at FreeBank mm-hmm. and we produce videos about the amazing future and the possibility and the fact that people are working really hard to build a better and more prosperous world and to take on the biggest societal challenges we face. That to me is the most important story of the day. And it's the most important story of our time. And it's a, it's a pity that we end up investing so much of ourselves in these like horrible, poisonous political debates that are just circular. And I think in so many cases, self-destructive. Um, so again, to the extent we want to build a better world, we should start doing it. Um, and to the extent we are holding on to baggage that doesn't quite fit well, like the notion that we are in fact members of distinct racial groups, and that is primarily how we should regard one another. That old notion given to us by slave traders, if you're still holding on to that in 2019, take a hard look in the mirror. It just seems weird to me. You should probably stop that. Camille Foster, thank you very much. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.